Amen. Thank you, Carolyn and Dan, for leading us in worship. What a beautiful evening and beautiful music. And, uh, and of course, how fitting uh, that as we continue together our sermon series in the book of Acts, the gospel on the move, how fitting that we hear a word uh, from our mission team that went to Lesotho this month. Uh, so Michael and Sarah and John and Angie, thank you uh, both for your faithfulness to go and for, for coming and for sharing with us a powerful testimony that pushes us outward, uh, shows us what this Acts series looks like in motion, the gospel on the move. We are in Acts chapter 6 and 7 together this evening. So if you'll turn with me to Acts chapter 6, we encounter, beginning in Acts 6, the life of Stephen, whose Situation here in the middle of the book of Acts becomes a cent- the central focus of both chapters 6 and 7 that we'll look at together. So we continue the gospel on the move with tonight's sermon from Acts 6 and 7 called Stephen's Life Speaks. Stephen's Life Speaks. Well, Acts 6 and 7 really function for us as we've taught through this book so far as a, a pivot moment in the point, uh, pivot point in the book of Acts. In fact, many of the speeches, the sermons that come up throughout the book of Acts do that for us. They, they form transitions in the book. Uh, and in this text tonight, in these couple chapters, we'll see several things that we have been reminded of as we've taught through this, uh, this book already. The first, that it is a second, a continuation of Luke's gospel, uh, Luke's account of the Acts of the Apostles. It's also uh, The core of the apostles' theology located in these sermons, in these speeches throughout Acts. Peter's earlier on and later and this evening, in the words of Stephen, we receive his own version of Israel's history as he defends his case. And so the first five chapters of Acts have seen the establishment of the church in Jerusalem. It's been growing. We've been following it along the way with these little phrases that remind us how quickly uh, the numbers have increased, Luke reminds us. And now in this next main section of Acts, the missionary work is beginning. The work of the church is starting to expand in various ways. In fact, interestingly enough, in these passages, we're going to see how the Acts 1 commission and sending is going to be fulfilled. That the gospel is going to begin to be sent out into Judea and Samaria just like they had been told to. Uh, Fascinatingly enough, and much like the biblical story, it doesn't happen because the people all sat down and said, well, God told us, let's make a plan to make sure that happened. Uh, It comes about because the persecution they face scatters them willingly or not. And so by the end of this evening's text, they will find themselves in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, even if not for their own doing. But by this point, the church has become a huge movement. The Jerusalem church is at least 10,000 people big. They're all in this one city, the entire population of which couldn't have been more than about 40,000 people. And so from here, we know the church is going to spread around the world. It's growing. It's been growing throughout the book of Acts, which begs us to ask, as we watch the church grow and multiply in number, why is it that the church is growing? Why does it keep increasing in number? Kenneth Latteret, a noted history professor at Yale, says that never in so short a time has any religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture 
without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. So sure, other ideas or movements have spread or taken over because of political force or uh, because of military conquest. But even historians can note that no movement has grown like Christianity did in the first century. No movement took hold from the bottom up like this one. The reason, in part, as many have noted, is that the Christian movement, the way of Jesus from the very beginning, formed a unity of people. A group of people who were convinced that they were called to live as family. In fact, as we were reminded in this morning's sermon, many who decided to follow in Jesus' way were forced to leave their own households, the provision and the, uh, the care that was offered by those. And so they were brought into the Jesus community and became a part of it, and, and it was required. It became incumbent upon them to provide for these people, to care for them. And so we found as early as Acts 2 that believers were holding all things in common. And so they're living as a family. This movement is growing, and yet it's not really the way they expected it. Now, maybe you've heard this story, or maybe you've experienced it yourself. If so, uh, we can say a prayer for you later. But there have been, uh, I've known a number of people uh, who have unexpectedly birthed multiples. Twins, triplets, even more than that. You can read about them in the papers. You hear news stories about this. People show up to the doctor expecting to give birth to one child when because it was hidden in the ultrasound or before ultrasounds took place, another child shows up after a long labor. Now this is usually much to the joy and excitement of the family. The family has now grown, but there's also some unexpected challenges, like your family just doubled in size. Your number of children just doubled when you weren't expecting it. You only have one of everything at home. You're going to have to, to get all these new things. And like a family that's been surprised by uh, an unexpected twins or triplets, the church in this chapter is experiencing a family that's doubling its in size unexpectedly. They're having to deal with the problems that come along with that, like you might expect. And so in chapter 6, at the beginning of this passage, we, we meet some of these problems. And listen, they had, they had set up ways to care for one another, but this was not some uh, beautifully instrumented program. It was set up on the fly. And numbers were growing so fast that they were dealing with problems as they came along. And so we read in the first seven verses of chapter 6 that during those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables Therefore, friends, select among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. What they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas, and a proselyte of Antioch. And they had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them. And the word of God continued to spread. And the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And so this narrative story about what's going on in the church as we continue to chronicle their growth starts with the criticism of their arrangements for caring for the poor. 
And what's interesting enough is, is that this was already taking place. We can see by this that not only were they caring for the poor, but the apostles were doing the load of the work, and it now becomes more than they can do. And so the 12 who have been doing this work up until now realize their burden of work is just too great. They can't keep being distracted from their other duties. And so the church needs many servants of many kinds to fulfill many different duties. They don't graduate out of this kind of service. They're not above it. They've been doing it. There's simply too much work for them. And so others are called to serve. Seven are appointed to take charge of the work. It's where we get that verb to serve, where we get our word for deacon. And Luke here sets these seven apart. It's not a formal title for them, this word deacon. It's not a, a, a name given to them. It's simply the task they were called to serve in. They were distinguished. It's interesting to look at what qualities distinguish these people for service. Stephen is noted as a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. They also pull aside these who are full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. And so in this appointment, uh, we're note, we see that the church even continued to grow. They increased in number. So back to our question, why is the church growing so much in the book of Acts? We're even told that priests a many great, great many of the priests became obedient to their faith. These priests had been antagonistic toward Jesus before. They'd helped lead in his crucifixion, but now many of their hearts are being changed. How? Had they reasoned them into conversion? Had Peter given a beautiful sermon convincing them that Jesus was the Messiah? Or has the church's service toward the poor begin to win their hearts over. And the Roman Emperor Julian, one of the most infamous of the Roman emperors in persecuting Christians, admitted himself and is quoted as having said that these infernal Galileans feed our poor in addition to their own. Imagine the emperor complaining about these Christians who won't stop feeding our poor. One historian, Eberhard Arnold, writes, the most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of Christian communities. He says Christian communities spent more money in the streets than followers of other religions spent in their temple. Why is the church growing so fast? Why are priests changing their belief in Jesus as the Messiah? The witness of the lives lived before them. A family who cared for the poor. Servants, deacons who take care of one another. People who make sure that every table gets fed. Apostles who devote themselves to the word of God and to prayer. And when they can't take care of the rest, they make sure someone is still serving the bread. There are three things I want to point out as we begin looking at the life of Stephen. I want to share them with you now so we can look at them, watch them as we go through the saga of Stephen here in this chapter. But the first is that servanthood is at the core of Christian commitment. Servanthood is at the core of Christian commitment. The second is that servanthood is marked by self-giving love. Servanthood is marked by self-giving love. And the third is that servanthood is rarely understood by the world. 
Christian servanthood is rarely understood by the world. And this becomes evident right away, right after these first seven verses. As soon as we've met Stephen, problems start. In fact, verse 8 tells us Stephen was full of grace and power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Notice the things that Jesus was doing are now being done by others. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen were Roman prisoners or descendants of prisoners who had been granted their freedom. Syrians, Alexandrians, and others from Cilicia and Asia stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. And so they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. And then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And notice this man filled with the Holy Spirit. His detractors can't even speak a word against him, can't withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. And when they do bring accusations against him, they say that his face looked like an angel. It makes you wonder how they knew what the face of an angel looked like. I'll tell you, for the rest of their lives, they probably answered that question by saying it looked like Stephen. Because this was a messenger from God. Our word angel literally means messenger, and that's what they had seen in him. One who speaks on God's behalf and out of the spirit that is within him. Imagine a church filled with that spirit, speaking with that spirit in such a way that those who criticize them or detract from them or draw charges up against them Find them looking, glowing with this kind of spirit. A powerful story. But Stephen's servanthood is not understood by the world. And all these conversions, this growth is causing an uproar. And so Stephen's called before the religious leaders and the priests. And he has to answer for what's going on here. In Acts chapter 7, uh, which is set up by this introduction we just got in Acts 6 is Stephen's answer to them. It's the longest sermon in the book of Acts. Longer than all of Peter's, longer than the other apostles. And in that sermon, in chapter 7 here, he makes two major points, really. One, that Israel has always resisted the prophets that God sent to them. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs in front of the people. wanted them to know that. Second, that your law can't save you. Because A, you've never been able to keep it, and B, it can't give you a new heart, which is the one thing that you truly need. And so Stephen has a chance to answer. And in his speech, Stephen starts giving them their own history back. It's a rhetorical device called syncresis, in which Stephen draws on Israel's story and contrasts it with what they actually Believe. There's positive and negative examples over and over again that he uses to defend the Christian way versus the way they understand their own history. 
He's supplying them with a competing version of the story they already know that, that points them to where he's landed with the proclamation, with the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. And he wants to show them through their own history that this is God's way. You may be familiar with the American sport of baseball. You might be less familiar with the British and European sport of cricket. It's wildly popular anywhere uh, that Great Britain once colonized. India, for example, will crowd, uh, people will crowd around televisions in the streets to watch cricket matches of their favorite British teams, uh, much like people watch other exciting sports here. Among the major differences of cricket and baseball, even though they can look similar, is the way the ball is delivered to the batter. You know, in baseball, you're probably familiar with, the pitcher stands on a mound. He's not allowed to move off that mound. He has to be touching that mound. There's no running start, just a wind-up and a delivery of the ball at whatever arm angle he finds most useful. In cricket, the arm has to come over the top, straight, no bend in the elbow, like a wheel swirling over the top. And that's a challenging thing to do standing still, and if you want to do it with any kind of skill or force. Cricket bowlers, as they're called, not pitchers, bowlers, uh, take a running start, a run-up to the throw uh, in cricket. And you'll see them. It's a crucial part of the delivery. Uh, they have to get it just right. They, they will uh, go up to, the, to the, the marker where they bowl from and step it off every time to get it just right. So that the run-up is the same every time they do it. Because as you can imagine, accuracy is important. And they'll practice that run-up. And if they get off, they'll step it off again to make sure their run-up is correct. Now if you get the run-up wrong, kind of like getting ready for the high jump or the long jump or the triple jump in the Olympics. If, you, if your run-up is off, the whole delivery is off. Inefficient. Misses the mark. That's a trivial illustration to make a serious point. That as we grapple with the Bible, as Stephen stands up to defend himself to these charges, he was accused of speaking against the temple and against the law, of saying that Jesus would destroy the temple and change the customs that Moses had given. And what he's going to do for them is show them that actually you need to rework your run-up. You need to have a different approach to this history. Pace out the whole journey from Abraham onward so that you arrive at this point, this present moment at exactly the right speed and from exactly the right angle. And then and only then will you understand who Jesus is and what I and my friends have been saying before you. In Acts chapter 7 is that response. It's a long sermon in which he in major sections, retells Israel's history using its major characters and, and pointing to where they've missed it all along. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 7 are Abraham and the promise. Stephen responds to the invitation from the high priest and, and begins to speak to them. And he tells them, brothers and fathers, listen to me, the God of glory appears to our ancestor Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haram and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and go to the land that I will show you. He begins Abraham's story, that he was promised this land 
the land in which you are now dwelling, he tells them. Except he didn't receive it. Stephen says he didn't even get a foot's length of that land. What he got was a token of the promise. God was making a covenant with him. He gives him the right of circumcision. He made a covenant with him, the sign, an act that gave him the promise. And in obedience to the command associated with it, he fathered Isaac and circumcised him. And so the line began that led to these patriarchs. The promise had begun all the way back to Abraham. This is foundational for the Christian story. Stephen starts the gospel story with Abraham. And so in 1 through 8, he retells that history, getting all the way up to verse 9. 9 through 16, he takes on Joseph, Joseph and the patriarchs. It's the second main section of his speech. Stephen's showing them how the, the prophecy in verse 6 of this chapter was fulfilled. That there was a promised land. And that these people that are represented by Joseph's brothers began the process of opposing God's appointed leaders. And so as a result of Pharaoh's coming to know Joseph's family, they're invited to settle in Egypt. And so the whole group, including Jacob, comes down to Egypt. Stephen is retelling them their whole history. Except all along the way, he's identifying himself with the good side and them with the people in the wrong. I'm sure they're going to love this when we get to the end. And the next section, this whole, the biggest section of his speech is, is 7, 17 through 43. He takes on Moses. Remember, the charges of Moses' law are what they first brought against him. And it's challenging for us whose history as a country or identity as a people is relatively short in world history to imagine a people living in a land who looked 1,500 years in the past and, and pulled upon that identity as their primary identity. But in Jewish life, there were really four things that drove, uh, four foundational things that drove their identity as a people. The Torah, the temple, the land, uh, and the people themselves. And in those four things is how they understood God and God's relationship with them. And so when Stephen shows up and starts preaching that the Messiah has come, that the Holy Spirit is not, God's presence is not bound to the temple, that the Torah has been superseded even by a new law. You need not be under that law anymore. That the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. The land is no longer sacred. God will make sacred wherever he goes. And that the people have now been expanded to include not just the lineage of Abraham, but all those who would believe in Jesus. He's attacked every foundational principle of what that has meant to be a Hebrew from the very beginning. And so he has to make them understand why this has happened and why they should believe it. It's a tall task. So Stephen takes on Moses. He tells about the scene in his life. He, he takes every 40 years in sequence, uh, his early life in Egypt, the crisis that he faced in attacking and killing an Egyptian who was opposing the Israelites. According to that Old Testament story, Moses, remember, hid the body in the sand and didn't want anybody to know what he'd done. Moses' hope, as Stephen interprets it, was that the Israelites might recognize that they had a friend and ally, an influential person that God would use to bring them salvation. Now Luke expects his Christian readers here to see a parallel between Moses and Jesus. 
Just like Moses was the savior of the people, allowed them to be delivered out of Egypt, Jesus has saved them also. And so he's drawing these parallels for them. And then he gets to this rhetorical device all the way down in the third section, verse 30. Forty years had passed. He's on to the next section of 40 years of Moses' life. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness in Mount Sinai in a flame of a burning bush. Remember, he's on the familiar passages of Moses. He's reinterpreting them for him. Verse 33, the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the mistreatment of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning. I have come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. And then four times in the next several verses, Stephen uses the word, this man, this Moses, is, uh, this Moses as, as a way of pointing out the characteristics that made him a savior, that made him a deliverer. So the passage brings out not simply that Israelite rejected Moses, but also that this was a rejection of their God-given leader. He's the one in verse 38. He, was the, he is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received the living or- oracles. In verse 39, our ancestors were unwilling to obey him. So again and again, Stephen reminds his hear- hearers that it was this man, Moses, who was responsible for the whole prophecy about the coming of a prophet like himself. So you've charged me with not respecting Moses, but I'm actually doing exactly what he said would happen. I'm pointing to a prophet like him, named Jesus. And the early Christians took that as their conviction, that what had been foretold in these other prophets was coming to reality in Jesus. So as we track down through Stephen's sermon, there's a version of Israel's history that puts the Two groups, nice and clear for us. There's those who accept God's message and his messengers, and there's those who reject them. Now notice who's in which category, okay? Because this is the, the main thrust of this whole long sermon. The comparison Stephen makes in Acts 7 aligns Stephen with, okay, let's count them up. Stephen's in line with the church, and they're in line with Abraham and Joseph and the prophets and Jesus. Not bad company. His opponents, those bringing charges against him, he compares them in this sermon to the Egyptians, to Joseph's brothers, to the rebellious in the wilderness who disobeyed Moses, and to the ancestors who killed the prophets. Not quite as good a company. So for Luke, rather than rejecting God's house or God's law, the followers of Jesus, the the way of him, are in line with this whole history. And that's Stephen's point. And so Stephen, in this eloquent speech, this whole chapter, is making the case that we are, in fact, doing what these have all said, and you are the ones who are missing it. What could possibly go wrong saying that in court? A servanthood is marked by self-giving love. And Luke tells us, In the last section of chapter 7, beginning in verse 54, the results of this speech. After he's made his case, what happens? Verses 
54 and on are just five verses devoted to Stephen's death. The first sentence recounts Stephen's vision twice. Verses 57 and 58 describe these people's reaction. And then we get the main event. When they'd heard these things, they became enraged and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But filled with the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. You know, Jesus in Scripture is seated in the seat of judgment. But for those who are in Christ, he stands as an advocate. The vision, he says, look, he said, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he died. And Saul approved of their killing him. So Stephen's life, Stephen's introduction in the book of Acts begins with a need. A need for more servants who are filled with the Holy Spirit and marked by faith. And he becomes one of them. And when the world doesn't understand what servanthood looks like, he's drawn, dragged before the courts and presents his best case. And when the world doesn't understand him, what do they do except exactly what they did to the one he follows, but crush him as quickly as possible? It's not the leaders this time. It's not any powers conspiring against him. It's the mob of people themselves that have him stoned. Stephen becomes the first martyr of the church Martyr, a category that gets created of people who bear witness to Jesus even unto death. The word martyr literally means witness. And what is the witness of this servant? It's been a witness that in Jesus the Messiah, God had fulfilled the covenant and had made a way to new life and new hearts and salvation for all people. And we look and we see the church growing because of the way they cared for people and and the way their self-giving love was poured out. And here's Stephen, whose life imitates Jesus' own life, even down to the last thing he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Except rather than calling out to God as Jesus did, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, Stephen calls out to Jesus. He continues to imitate him even unto death as so many martyrs of the church would. A painful but real reminder that there was a day, as there continues to be in many places around the world, a faith so vibrant and so powerful that people were willing to commit to it even to the death. What would his witness accomplish? He didn't convince anyone in the courts with his argument, they drug him out and stoned him. But maybe, as we saw at the beginning, maybe just one of those priests was watching. Maybe just one of those teachers of the law took notice and like those priests at the beginning began to turn to Jesus. Maybe someone saw the witness of a man who would follow his faith in Jesus even to death. Anyone who's read Acts knows that there was one. The one that all of those stone throwers laid their coats at his feet. His name was Saul. 
And we may never know what our witness accomplishes. We may never know what it will cost us. Stephen's life testifies that the effects echo far beyond he could ever imagine. The most prolific writer in all of the New Testament sits in agreement and watches him die. Saul's conversion, we'll remember, gets credited to a flash of light on a lonely road. But it begins watching one faithful witness who says, the way of Jesus is the only way, no matter what it costs. Servanthood matters. And our witness goes so far beyond we could ever imagine. When, like Stephen, we imitate Jesus in all things. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your word, for the story of your church. We pray that you would make it come alive in us, even as we seek to imitate you. In Jesus' name, amen.